Welcome to the How Did You Get Into That podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an inspiring interview or encouraging message to help you find and do work you love. Now, here's your host, Grant Baldwin. What is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of How Did You Get Into That? My name is Grant. It is great to have you here with us today. Really do appreciate you joining us. If you are just joining us, if this is your first time here, welcome. Really glad you're hanging out with us. We do an interview every single week with someone doing interesting types of work, unique types of work, things that make you go, hmm, not like CNC Music Factory. You remember that? That was a little blast from the past there. But you ever find someone, you come across someone who's doing some type of work and you're like, how did you get into that? Like, that's just fascinating. That's just interesting. And so that's what we get into every single week on this show. And uh, today we've got a great guest for you. We've got my buddy Hal Elrod that's going to be joining us today. Hal is a, uh, a speaker and author. One of the things that he is well known for lately is he wrote a book called The Miracle Morning, all about how you get started in the morning and how to kickstart your morning and how that affects the rest of your day. So, we talk about this. Why is this such a, a powerful concept and why has this made such an impact on so many people? And then how he got into it and his own story and journey of what led him to where he is today. And part of the reason that we share these stories and journeys is because so oftentimes you can see your own parallel. You can see your, your own journey in these other people's stories and, and adventures. So that's why we bring people like Hal to the show is to hear what they're up to, to hear how they got into it, and to hear how uh, the lessons that you can learn in your own journey to find and do work you love. So let's get right into it. Before we do, though, don't forget to download the bonus material uh, right afterwards. Hal and I stick around for a few more minutes and chat. So definitely you're going to want to, you, you don't want to miss that. Make sure you download that at grantbolden.com slash Hal, H-A-L, Elrod, E-L-R-O-D. So let's get right into it. Here's my interview with my buddy Hal Elrod. Enjoy. What is up, my friends? Welcome back to another episode of How Did You Get Into That? Today, we are joined by my buddy Hal Elrod, who is a speaker, author, coach, just all around good dude, who's got uh, an amazing, amazing story. I'm excited to get into his journey about how he got into what he's up to today. So Hal, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I love your format. How did you get into that? What an intriguing question and and what a fun topic. You know where it triggered was you and I are both speakers and we were just talking a little bit beforehand that I think we speak at a lot of the same events, but we, we haven't actually formally cross paths yet at the uh, at some events. But as a speaker, I get that question all the time of people going like, hey, how did you get into that? And I found that some people like want to become speakers and they want to know what steps they need to take. And other people are going, you know, I don't necessarily want to be a speaker. I'm just, that's fascinating. You make a living from that. So tell me, do you get that question a lot? Yeah. And for me, being a speaker is something now that kind of is a, it's one of of many different kind of careers that I'm in. It's, it's weird. I've got like, people go, what do you do? I'm like, um... It's kind of a loaded question. Do you do you <laughs> yeah. find like that you answer it depending on who you like who's asking? Like how much of an explanation do I want to give? Yeah. Yeah, and it's more too. I mean, I think that for the last couple of years the Miracle Morning the book has created this worldwide movement and it's it's I've launched this whole book series, the Miracle Morning book series which is Miracle Morning for you name it, teachers, students, kids, entrepreneurs, CEOs. We kind of have all these titles in the works. And so because the the Miracle Morning of anything I've ever done, it's had the biggest impact on people's lives. So my answer now, for a long time it was I'm a speaker. Now it's usually um, I'm an author. And that's actually what I lead with. So yeah, it actually has kind of evolved over time. And you know, who knows, a year from now I might be doing more live events and I'll say, oh, yeah, I put on live events. <laughs> you know, so right. 
just kind of depends. You know, that's one of the fun things about what we get to do is it always does evolve and change. And so this year, you know, it may be author, next year it may be speaker, and another year it may just be business owner, you know? And so like being able to just take some of the pressure off instead of feeling like I need to know today what I'm doing for the rest of my life, but instead feeling like I, you know, I can, I can change it. And if a year from now, I, you know, I want to label myself as something different that, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that dreams grow and evolve as we grow and evolve. And when I started a career in sales, I was like, I want to be the, you know, like do this for the rest of my life. And, and then I want to, oh, I want to be a manager and teach you how to be a salesperson. They get to the point where I go, I don't want to do any of that. I want to do my own thing, <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, definitely. And then I wanted to be a life coach and I did that for, you know, I, I still do some coaching, but it was like eventually like, ah, I want to do something else, you know? Right. Right. So, um, yeah. Nice, man. All right. So let's, uh, let's backtrack a little bit. So we were just talking a little bit beforehand. You grew up in Northern California, is that right? A small town called Oakhurst, which is kind of on the way to Yosemite National Park. Okay. Nice. And what was life like growing up? What your parents do? So really interesting. When I was 11 years old, my mom and dad bought a grocery store called the Oakhurst Market. And it was built in 1945, I believe. It had, back then, they would always, you know, build the house like into the back of or on the top of the business. Oh, nice. You know, people always lived in it. So, so we lived in a grocery store. Like we, if you were in check stand one, ringing people up and you took like six steps out of check stand one, that was the door to our living room. No way. Yeah. So it was, so a, it was a, like, like this huge pantry for you. <laughs> exactly. dude. Yeah. We, I mean, literally, and it, we, there was no, you know, dress code. I would just wake up in the morning and be like, I need some cereal. So I just walk out of my pajamas, say hi to the whoever was check stand person or the butcher. And then I'd go grab some, some cereal. So yeah, it was, it was cool. And then at night we would actually, we would clear out all the displays in the aisles and me and my friends, my parents were cool. They let us do this. We'd put on our rollerblades and we would just turn the whole, we'd crank up the store stereo and just turn it into like a roller skating rink. Wow, that is so cool. That is yeah. awesome. And then we'd we'd get my dad's video camera and like after hours and we'd you know, we'd have my dad dress up or whatever and then we would rob him and put it on tape and yeah, it was, <laughs> just, it was pretty wild. Awesome. Did you ever want to go into that? Did you wanna like did you kinda grow up working in the in the grocery business and thinking like, hey, this seems like a, a logical next step for you? Yeah, so when I was 11, basically right when the, my parents grabbed the grocery store, my mom's pretty pretty hardcore, pretty strict, and she just said, all right, we're going to give you a job, and you're employed, and if you need anything that, or if you want anything that you don't absolutely need, you will buy it for yourself. You know, we will buy you Payless shoes. If you want Nikes, you will save up the money and buy those for yourself, so on and so forth. So I really learned the value of earning anything that you really wanted at a young age, but when I was 15, uh, a buddy of mine, his older brother was like a... Uh, not a real DJ, but just was DJing a school, our school dance, the junior high dance. And he got real sick at the last minute. And my buddy said, Hey, do you what you want to, my brother Colin can't make the dance. Do you want to DJ? We can use his equipment and, and play music and DJ the dance. And I was like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a blast. <laughs> sure. Yes, why not? And so we went and did it and I loved it. And I started talking about, Hey, let's start a DJ business. And, uh, me and the friend ended up breaking up our little partnership, but I convinced my parents to finance like $2,000 worth of equipment, like really legitimate professional equipment that could DJ an entire, you know, like school cafeteria or whatever. And so they, uh, they financed it. And I, and the promise was, you know, I'll keep working in the grocery store and I'll pay it back. But within a few weeks, I got a, my first gig where I got paid a hundred dollars to do a wedding. And if you're 15, four hours for a hundred bucks to play music is like, oh my gosh. Yeah, no kidding. 
And within a few months, I was making $75 an hour and, uh, you know, DJing a couple times a month. And so I'd make more in a month than my friends and they were working, you know, 20 hours a week and I was working 10 hours a month. So that really opened my eyes to kind of the entrepreneurial spirit and go, wow, you can actually make more money than the average person doing something that doesn't even feel like work. And I think that's where what I do today, that seed was probably planted when I was 15. Did your parents enjoy what they were doing? Because it seems like like owning a grocery store would be a lot of work. You got thin margins. You have a lot of hours. You have a lot of employees. You just have a lot to deal with versus kind of the solopreneur like type of model that a lot of us follow today. No, it was a nightmare for them. I think it was fun the first couple of years when uh, we were, they were making money. But what happened is it was a small town and a Vons opened up. At the beginning of when we started, it was... Oakhurst Market north in a town, Rayleigh's at the south in a town, and then a Vons opened up. And, it, you know, we weren't, like you said, small margins. We weren't making enough to, to be able to compete. And, and so basically I saw my parents. It was really, really sad. I mean, I would see them work. They had to fire all the employees. They had to fire, my dad had to fire the butcher. I mean, they had to fire everybody because they weren't making enough money. And then they were working from like 6 a.m. until midnight, 2 a.m., five, six, seven days a week and going in debt day after day after day. So that, that was a really tough reality to watch my parents go through for a long time. So for you, was it like, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. I just don't want to do it that way. Or like, what were you kind of thinking it would eventually, were you yeah. thinking like the DJ thing would be the long-term solution or what? Like, what were yeah. You, what were you so I started on the radio. I, when I was like, I don't know, maybe uh, six months or so after I started DJing, you know, school dances and weddings and car shows and this and that, the local radio station called up and they said they had heard that I was a DJ and they, they wanted a high school student to host a weekly radio show. And uh, so I got that gig, which was like, a, that was that was really cool. You know, I, I didn't get paid for it, but it was just, it was just cool. You know, my friends right. thought I was super cool on the radio and I'm giving out concert tickets and shout outs to like the girls that I liked, <laughs> you know, living the dream, living the dream at 15 and so yeah, so my dream at that time was I want to be a nationally syndicated radio DJ and I want to have a DJ company where I have mini DJs going out. So I was like at, at 15, 16, that's where I started to think about that. Right. And then I went to college and I ended up, I was on the radio again in college and then a buddy of mine sold Cutco kitchen knives. Yeah. I thought it was, I, mean, I just, I, I made fun of him all the time and, you know, I just thought it was a silly thing, but I ended up going into the office one day with him and very long story short, I, uh, I decided I got, you know, kind of almost pressured by him to dude, give it a try. Come on, go through training and just give it like, give it a month. And I'm like, fine. So I, uh, I went through three days of training and my first 10 days selling Cutco, I broke the all time Western region company record, which basically meant I had sold more in my first 10 days than I don't know, hundreds of thousands of sales reps that came before me. And uh, I also made, I think I made $3,000 in 10 days, which I was 19, well, yeah, you know, massive, massive. And you start out a small percentage. So I'm like, if that would, if I had been there, like once I was there for a while and my commission, I would have earned $7,500 with the same amount of sales in those 10 days. Wow. So like my, I quit the radio job, like after a week, <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm making 10 bucks an hour at the radio or I'm averaging like $300 an hour in sales. I'm like, there's no, no comparison. And that's where my career path. I, I went into, I'm going to be the greatest Cutco salesperson ever. And then I'll be a manager. And you know, that kind of headed down a different direction. So whenever you're doing the Cutco stuff, is it, did you enjoy it? Or are you really into it? Or is it just kind of like, you know what, I'm just good at this. So let's just keep going down this path. Cause there's plenty of things that you may be good at that you wouldn't sure. necessarily enjoy doing. So how did you kind of view the, the Cutco knife selling process? I loved it. 
I loved it. I really believed in the product. I mean, I still believe in the product. Actually, I buy it for gifts all the time for people. Yeah. So yeah, so I really I, enjoy, I had a ton of fun. And what, what I really enjoyed, I enjoyed meeting people. I enjoyed the you know the process. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, sales is tedious. Period. You got to make calls, all these things. So I didn't love every part of the job, but overall, the culture in our office was like the most positive. Like, and we were my manager was working on becoming the first ever manager to do a million dollars in an office. So it was like you know they have all this great competition and all these incentives and all these rewards. Like there's always so many things that are exciting to focus on that, you know, getting on the phone and making 20 calls a day, uh, you know, pales in comparison to the, uh, the rewards that were there for me. For sure. So was the plan basically, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing really, really well at this. So let's keep going down this path and see where it takes us. Or what, what are you thinking that the, or is this just kind of like, ah, eh, this is a fun college gig, but this will eventually kind of phase out. No, because I plan on doing it forever. That was my plan. I planned on as a sales rep, I wanted to hit hall of fame you know, which I mean, would take you know a few years, but I wanted to have kind of notched that under my belt in terms of an accomplishment. And then my manager, like day three on the job, I was like, dude, I want to do what he does. Like mm-hmm. he is because he changed my life. He really opened up my eyes to, you know, I was just, other than the, the DJ thing makes me sound like I was actually like some super smart, successful kid <laughs> when th- that was the furthest thing from the truth. I, I got horrible grades. I, I set a record for the most hours of detention that any senior at my school <laughs> ever had. Like I was always in trouble, like never mean spirited anything. I was just a total class clown and a screw up and, you know, ditching school and this and that. And so, yeah, so I was never an achiever. And then when I did this with Cutco, I was like, this is uh, my manager changed my life. You know, his name is Jesse Levine and still one of my close friends. And I was like, I want to do what he does, like to be able to give that gift of working with young people and inspiring them to bring out the best in them. And so, yeah, so that was my plan. And a year and a half into the Cutco career, I was driving home after I gave a speech at a conference and I was hit head on by a drunk driver at 80 miles an hour on the freeway wow. and sent my car spinning into oncoming traffic. And the worst was actually yet to come as a car crashed into my driver's side door at 70 miles an hour. And for anybody listening right now, just to give you a visual, like imagine, you know, put your hands up in front of you like you're holding onto the steering wheel, look over your left shoulder and imagine a car is coming 70 miles an hour at your door and just hits you without hitting the brakes, which is according to this car that he didn't have time to hit the brakes. He just crashed into my car and it smashed the left side of my body. Instantly, I broke 11 bones. I ruptured my spleen. I punctured my lung. I, my ear was almost completely taken off. I mean, it was just, it was horrific. And I began bleeding and I bled to death. I was clinically dead for six minutes in a coma for six days and came out of the coma to, to face the news from the doctors that I would never walk again. And I had permanent brain damage. And you know, that, that was kind of where the, the, the greatest, my, I call that my first rock bottom, like the first time in my life where I, I didn't know if I could overcome it. And keeping a long story short, I, I made the decision that I was not going to give in to the doctors. You know, like I basically told my parents, I said, they might be experts in medicine, but they're, they're not experts in me. And I said, I'm, you know, I figured there's only one of two options here. Number one, if they are right and I never walk again, I have already decided I'll be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair. Because if I'm in a wheelchair, I can either be miserable or I can be happy. I'm going to be happy. But I said, I told my mom and dad, I said, I'm not putting my energy into that possibility. I've already accepted that as the worst case scenario. All of my energy is going into walking again. I'm thinking about that. I'm visualizing it. I'm praying about it. I'm, you know, and three weeks later, the doctors came in with routine x-rays and they said, we don't know how to explain this, but your body is healing at an incredible rate. And we're going to let you take your first step tomorrow in therapy. 
Wow. So it went from never walking again to three weeks later, I took my first step. Four weeks after that, I, I left the hospital and I, against doctor's orders, I got back to work at Cutco and you know, was competing again within a matter of weeks. Where do you think that comes from of that, that place? Because you, you could have easily gone the other direction of going like, I'm at rock bottom. Yeah. They say I can't walk. They clearly know what they're talking about. They've got expensive degrees that would give them some credibility on this subject. Like what makes you say, you know, like, nah, I think I can overcome this. I think I can do better than this. Because I think there's plenty of people who maybe listen to this who they're, maybe they're, they haven't had the, that type of traumatic experience, but like they're at rock bottom. They've hit that spot where they're just like, you know what? The world is against me. My, my boss doesn't like me. My work sucks. Things are rough at home. Uh, they just feel like life is ganging up against them. And so they're kind of agreeing with what society is telling them. So why was it in that state that you were in that you were like, nah, I, I think there's a different plan for me here? Yeah, I mean, part of it, I look back and I'm like, how the hell did I think that way? You know, like, right, right. part of me now marvels at like how well I responded to it. And the doctors thought I was in denial because I was so happy. Right. They literally, they called my parents in one day and they said, we think Hal's de- in delusional. He's in denial. This isn't normal for somebody to be laughing and joking and smiling. And I mean, the, the thing I can attribute it to is, is something I learned in my sales training, which is called the five minute rule. And the five minute rule says that when things go wrong, when things don't go as planned, it's okay to be negative sometimes, but not for more than five minutes. Mm -hmm. And this was basically taught to me around, you know, like the adversity you deal with in sales, rejection and, you know, having somebody buy a bunch of stuff and you're all excited, then they call and just cancel their order and it devastates you or having, you know, setting a goal and it's so important to you and you don't reach it, you know, all, all these things. So the five minute rule was to apply to that. It was like, hey, once it happens, you can't change it. There's no point in dwelling on it. Give yourself five minutes to bitch, moan, complain, vent, punch a wall, whatever you got to do to, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to bottle up your emotion, feel them to the fullest. But after five minutes, understand that there's no value in dwelling on or putting energy into wishing you could change something, wishing something didn't happen. You know, being angry about it is, is it's resisting it. You're wishing it didn't happen. You're angry. Being right. sad is it's wishing it didn't happen. You're a- but those negative emotions that are self-created, we don't think they're self-created. We think, well, of course I'm upset. Look what happened. Right. But right. it's, no, 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 no. It's not because that happened. It's that you haven't simply accepted that that happened and therefore given yourself peace around it. And so for me, my dad, when he came in and, and the doctors had said he, they thought I was in denial and they wanted my dad to get me to admit that I was really distraught over the whole thing. And this was before I was ever told I would walk again. I mean, this was only two weeks after the crash that my dad came in and he, he said, Hal, hey, the doctors are concerned. And he explained everything. And I said, dad, tell the doctors I live by the five minute rule. And it's been two weeks. <laughs> There's no point in me being sad and wishing this didn't happen or being angry I can't change it. The only intelligent response that I have is to be as be focused on my recovery and be as happy and grateful as I can possibly be throughout that process. And and that really is it. Well, I mean, the five minute rule sounds great whenever it comes to I made a sale and then the sale fell through or they asked for a refund or someone didn't like me or whatever. But it's like, it seems like it's a totally different ball game whenever you have such a, a traumatic life event like this or I lost my job or I started a business and it failed or my marriage is on the rocks or my relationships are strained or I just filed bankruptcy or there's just some like massive catastrophic thing. So how do you apply that same five minute rule to that level of just difficulty? that life may bring. 
The principle is the same, and I agree with you. It's easier said than done. In fact, whenever I teach this to an audience and I go, how many of you, by the way, are feeling like this makes sense logically that you shouldn't resist the things that you can't change and the only real intelligent choice you have is to accept them and be at peace with them and you know, not put negative energy into them? You know, I go, but how many of you think it's easier said than done? And every, every hand always sure. goes up. And I say, it's like, it's like anything. It's like any change in thinking. It's all about conditioning. It's all about repetition. So I used to, when I would speak, I would have these $5 wristband, you know, can't change it wristbands. And they simply say, can't change it. Those are the three words that kind of allow me to, to access the five minute rule, which is where when you find yourself pissed off or upset or angry, and I'll use traffic as an example, right? Most people don't love traffic, right? They're like, I hate traffic and I get frustrated. But what I've realized is, and everybody can imagine that we're in traffic right now. Now, let's say we need to be to an appointment at a certain time. Maybe it's work, maybe it's school. We, we woke up late, you know, we slept through our alarm or it didn't go off. We're running late and then we hit traffic. Most people spend that time in the car in traffic, let's say 30 minutes in traffic, they spend that time in all sorts of negative emotional states, right? So I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm regretful that I left late, gosh damn it, I'm right, on and on and on. And what you realize is, does wishing you had left the house earlier change the time that you left the house that morning? Right, right. No, but we're, we're, we're upset that we left the house late, but we're creating that. And when you go, okay, I can't change it. I can't change that I left the house late. All of a sudden now you can take a deep breath and you can be at peace with the fact that you left the house late and, you know, hopefully make a better decision the next day, you know, commit to what you're going to do differently. Then we hit traffic. And, and Grant, let me ask you a rhetorical question. You can answer it. But does getting upset at the speed of the cars in front of you change the speed of the cars in front of you? No. Well, why would we do it? Right, right, right. As intelligent human beings, why would you put an ounce of energy into wishing the car in front of you was going faster and that there wasn't a line of traffic? Right. But no one ever taught us this. It's like arguably one of the most important, I really believe this is the, one of the most important lessons that I've ever learned and that I, you know, from the accident or whatever, but it's, it's the first step in everything that you want. Happiness, everything is you've got to teach yourself to accept the things that you can't change. So traffic's a great metaphor where when I'm in traffic now, I used to be just like every person and frustrated and upset that I left the house late and mad that the cars are going so slow and worried about the being late to the appointment and the consequence for that. Now I, I just go... <sighs> can't change it. I'm in the car for the next 30 minutes. I'm going to be late, left the house late, but I can't change that. However, I get to choose whether or not I enjoy the ride. Right. And to me, that's a metaphor for life. Once we accept all the things that we can't change, we get to be at peace with those things, not put energy into wishing we could change what we can't, and only focus all of our energy on changing or creating what it is that we can change or create. I totally echo that and resonate with that as a, I don't know, maybe that's a thing that all, all speakers are required to talk about. I know that's something in my own presentations and speeches I talk a lot about is that there's some things like you just, you cannot control, you can't do anything about. So what's the point in getting bent out of shape over something you can't do, you know? So you and I notice that sometimes whenever we travel, so I always enjoy, <laughs> I always can get a good laugh of we got delayed, flight was canceled, we, there was weather, there was mechanical, there was some issue that nobody can really do anything about. And the person that's getting bent out of shape and, and out of control about it or, or chewing out a gate agent, yep. a flight attendant, you just want to give the guy like a hug and be like, hey, dude, hey, 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 it's yeah. not their fault. Like they can't do anything about it. You yeah. cannot, I know you're pissed off and I know you're angry, but you cannot get bent out of shape over something that you can't control. So just always recognizing there's some things you can control, some things that you can't, but knowing the difference and knowing how you react to each is a huge, huge thing. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So you have that first rock bottom moment. What was the second rock bottom moment that you had? 
the second rock bottom is what led to my life's work today. Well, I actually, I could say both of them did because the first rock bottom was when I was in the hospital going, maybe I'm meant to do more than sell knives, yeah. you know? And that's where the seed was planted. Like, I always wanted to be a motivational speaker because I, I spoke a lot, you know, as a top salesperson. They, I spoke at almost every event that we had, you know, national, regional, you know, whatever, local. So that dream was already kind of born. And then the doctor made a joke or kind of a comment. He said, once my parents went back and explained that I, was, that I wasn't uh, delusional, that I was actually genuinely happy, the doctor said something that, he, you know, your son should write a book on that because that's not a normal way to respond after this, you know, when you're told you might not walk again. So that seed was kind of planted. So anyway, so but long story short, the second rock bottom, it was actually much worse than the first. And when I share that, yeah, I usually get funny looks like, Wait, wait, did, didn't you die the first time? Like You still have some brain damage. <laughs> yeah, like, did you die longer another time? Like, what happened in number two? So, no, the U.S. economy crashed, and I think your listeners can probably relate to this one a lot closer than they can dying for, mo- for most people. The economy crashed 2008, and I went from being on top of the world for me. I mean, I was living my dream. I was a coach. I had launched a coaching business, earning right around six figures, doing success coaching, sales coaching, et cetera. I had launched my speaking career and I had been, just got my first $2,500 speech. You know, back then I was 25. And then I had written my first book, Taking Life Head On. And Taking Life Head On had become a number one bestseller. So living the dream, bought my first brand new house, literally brand new, bought my dream car, sports car. Like life was great. And as many of us, if not all of us, remember, it, se- it seemed like it happened pretty quickly, but the U.S. economy crashed, and I crashed with it overnight. It, well, it seemed like it was overnight, but it happened probably over, about six months. I lost over half of my clients, over half of my income. I became deeply depressed. I lost my house to the bank. I canceled my gym membership. I stopped exercising completely, and I was living on credit cards, and I went from being very proud to be debt-free to $53,000 credit card balance in six months. Wow. And so much fear and uncertainty and and having, you know, I felt like I had tried everything to fix my life and nothing worked. I decided I took a friend's advice and I hated running, but he said I needed to go for a run every day. And so on day one of my first run, which I was going out with, I was like, oh, this is so stupid. I need to make money. Running's not going to make me money. But he told me I needed to go on a run and listen to self-help while I was on my run to put myself in a peak state mentally, emotionally, and physically, and yeah. then learn something I could apply to my life. And so I heard a quote from Jim Rohn, and this became the catalyst for the Miracle Morning. Your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development. Hmm. And in that moment, I realized I stopped running. I was looking for any excuse to stop running. <laughs> and, and I rewound it, and I played it again, and I realized I'm not developing myself every day. I'm not dedicating time to my personal development, so I'm not becoming the person that I need to be to create the success that I want in my life. And uh, to quantify that for everybody listening, you know, if you're measuring your success in any area, your health, your fitness, your finances, your relationships, happiness on a scale of one to 10, all of us want level 10 success, right? Nobody goes, well, eh, I don't want to be like too happy or too rich. Like I'll take a six, you know, six and a half. Yeah, no, like we all want level 10. But my realization in that moment is I'm a level two person. Like my level of personal development, as Jim Rohn said, it's like at a two or a three. And that makes sense as to why I'm not experiencing level 10 success in my life. If I go home and I I figure out a ritual, dedicate time every day to my personal development so I can become a level 10 person, level 10 success will meet me head on, at least was the theory. And I created, I basically spent an hour online. I'll kind of wrap this up here. I created what was the most extraordinary personal development 
routine known to man or, or at least known to me. Mm-hmm. It didn't have a name. It wasn't called the Miracle Morning. It was just like, hey, if I do, basically, I, I figured out these are the six practices that the world's most successful people do. They do one, typically one of them. Like they, one person swears by one while another swears by a different one. And then when I was trying to figure out which of these is the best one to do, my epiphany was, wait, what if I did all of them? Right. What if I did the six most life-changing, you know, proven, timeless practices that the world's most successful people do every day? They do one or two. What if I did all six and I woke up the next morning, I did all six, and less than two months later, I had almost tripled my income. I had more than doubled it, almost tripled it. I went from being in the worst shape of my life physically to deciding, you know what? I hate running, so I'm going to run a 52-mile ultra marathon to really challenge myself. And I never run more than a mile before that. And then my depression was gone on the first day. And because my life changed so radically so quickly, I started calling it my miracle morning. I taught it to a coaching client. Her life changed, and she went from going, Hal, I'm not a morning person. Uh, uh, okay, I'll try it. Yeah. A week later, she goes, I'm a morning person. And it just kind of, after that happened multiple times with multiple clients, I had a realization that I've got a responsibility to share this with the world. And now there are, you know, I don't know the exact number, hundreds of thousands of people around the world that do the Miracle Morning and everything from losing insane amounts of weight to starting businesses and writing books and, and, and increasing their income. And it really is a universal strategy to accelerate who you are becoming so that you can accelerate your success. Kind of that whole who you become is reflected in, you know, or in what you achieve or vice versa. And, and um, yeah, and I'm just, I'm, I've been humbled by, by the results that other people are getting. Yeah, the, and I've personally I've read The Miracle Morning. It's a great book. It's a very simple, quick, easy read. And the advice is very, very practical. It's easy to implement and really take action on immediately. So to kind of wrap up, give us an overview of The Miracle Morning, what some of those practices are that you teach of what the, a morning should look like. And especially for people that are, are well, actually, tell you, we're going to save some of that for the bonus round. But go ahead and give us those six practices that we need to consider in the morning. Yes, the six practices, and I'll share this real quick, or the disclaimer on these, is when I came up with the list of six, at first I was disappointed, and I almost just threw in the the whole idea, kind of threw in the towel, because I had heard of all six of these, I had heard of them. Mm-hmm. And our society, we're conditioned, we like, whoa, no, no, I've already heard of that. And we kind of dismiss it versus, hey, am I doing that every day? Oh, right, right. gee, I'm not. And that was my realization is, I don't do these every day. And the world's most successful people swear by any one of them, depending on who you talk to. I organized them into an acronym with the help of my brilliant wife, <laughs> who made the suggestion. These are called, the, the acronym is SAVERS, and I call these the life savers. The six practices guaranteed to save your life from missing out on your full potential. The first S is for silence. The proven benefits of meditate, you know, meditation, prayer, combination of both, whatever works for you. But if you if you study meditation, if you Google like Fortune 500 CEOs that meditate, you'll find out that some of the world's most successful people in business, professionally, swear by meditation, not for religious or spiritual purposes so much as what it does for your cognitive ability, so that you can think clearer, make better decisions, have more willpower, etc. So starting your day in a period of peaceful, purposeful silence. And in the book, I teach you if you've never meditated before, here's how you do it in in three steps and make it really, really easy. The A in savers is for affirmations. And affirmations have a bad rap because they've been taught to be lying to yourself. Say, tell yourself, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire. But no, you're not a millionaire. You're not even a hundred thousandaire, right? So if that's the case for you, you're smart and you, you don't buy into the affirmation. So the way I teach affirmations in the book 
is how to create affirmations that are very much in alignment with your goals, what you want to accomplish, why you want to accomplish, what the activity you're committed to taking is and when you're going to take it. And you read that every single day and you program your subconscious mind not to feel good like, oh, money is going to flow to me effortlessly, but to program you to actually do the thing that will ensure that money shows up in your life. The V is for visualization. And again, I talk about how why visualization, most people try it, they check out, it doesn't work. How do you do it so it creates action in your life on a daily basis? The E is for exercise. And I'm not saying you scrap your afternoon or evening workout, but you doing purposeful, even five minutes. In fact, Robert Kiyosaki interviewed me yesterday, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. And Grant, I don't know if you saw me post this on Facebook, but I have to throw this in there because I'm, I'm still like reeling from this. He said he's read The Miracle Morning three times. Wow. He's on day 60 without missing a day, and it has completely changed his life. This wow. is multimillionaire, 65-year-old Robert Kiyosaki. So, but he talked about all these practices, how you know it was the first time that affirmations ever worked for him because he always thought they were fluffy. Mm-hmm. He said exercise in the morning. He, never, he always skipped it because he thought it had to be long, but now he does three minutes during his Miracle Morning every day, and it's changing his life. So exercise in the morning, just a small amount to get your heart rate up, increase your energy throughout the rest of the day. You can still go to the gym in the afternoon or the evening. The R is for reading, and obviously not reading like Harry Potter or Fifty Shades of Grey, nothing wrong with those books, but you know, <laughs> identifying the books that have the topics and the knowledge that will take the areas of your life to the next level that you need to improve. And the final S is for scribing, and scribing is... To me, it's a fancy word. It wasn't even in my vocabulary until I used a thesaurus. But that means writing, the most popular form of which is journaling, right? Put in writing, what are you grateful for? What are the top three things that you need to do today to ensure that you're on track for your goals? Put those things in writing. Start the day with clarity. And when you win the morning, you win the day, and you start to see results in your life beyond what you've ever experienced before. Well said, and I like that uh, when you win the morning, you win the day. Great way to, uh, to kind of punctuate things. Now, what, here's one of the things we're going to say for the bonus round, because I think there's people listening like, that sounds adorable, and I'm <laughs> glad that that works for Robert, and I'm glad that that works for all those people, but you don't understand me. You don't understand how I'm wired. I like to sleep. I get ugly if I get up early, so I need that beauty rest. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. How can we begin to implement the miracle morning for people that aren't morning people, and how can we begin to put some of that into practice? But again, we're going to save that for the bonus round, which people can download for free over at uh, grantbalden.com. So in the meantime, how, where can we send people? If people want to find out more about you, find out more about the book, where can we go? Yeah. If you want to buy the miracle morning or go read the reviews, we just had our I don't know, 750th five-star review, which is pretty cool. Go to amazon.com. That's the best place to buy the book is amazon.com. And you can get it, you know, Kindle, you can get it um, paperback, you can get it audiobook. Uh, and if you like iBooks, it's on iBooks uh, as well. If you want to contact me, halelrod.com, H-A-L-E-L-R-O-D, my name.com, and you can contact me there. And then last but not least, I really invite all of your listeners, Grant, to join the Miracle Morning community on Facebook. And I don't know if you've looked in there, but it has become the most engaged online community that we've, I've ever seen. We have 15,000 members from all around the world, probably 50 to 100 that join every day. And I've actually had New York Times bestselling authors reaching out to me saying, Hal, I heard your like they, they stalk my community and then they asked me, I've never seen a community with that much support and interaction amongst the members. How did you do that? And uh, that we'll save that for another podcast. But yeah, come join the Miracle Morning community 
on uh, Facebook, and uh, I'll be happy to see you there. Awesome. We'll definitely be sure and link up to that. So, Hal, enjoy the time, buddy, and I uh, really appreciate the chat. We'll definitely uh, chat a little more here at the bonus round, so we will, uh, we'll see you over there. Cool. Thanks, Graham. Appreciate you, buddy. All right, there you go, my friends. Hope you enjoyed that chit-chat with Hal Elrod, author, speaker, all-around good dude, and uh, I guess Cutco knife salesman, which I was kind of looking through our drawers, and apparently we've got a Cutco knife. And i got to say, it's really good. I'm not going to lie. So anyway, you might want to check that out too. Uh, again, I hope you enjoyed that, uh, that chat with Hal. Definitely make sure that you download the bonus material. Hal and I talk for a few more minutes about the Miracle Morning, so make sure you, uh, you stick around for that. Hey, as always, feel free to leave us a rating or review within iTunes. Uh, shoot me an email if there's anything I can ever do for you. But hey, we're here for you. We support you. We believe in you. Uh, I would encourage you and challenge you to do more than just listen to these shows, but figure out how do I actually implement these? How do I apply these? How do I take what we've talked about? Uh, in this episode or any episode? And how do I go put that to practice in my own life? How do I find and do work that I love? We're, we're at over 115, 120 some episodes right now of people just like yourself who are doing work that they love. And it's not easy, but you can do it. There's no reason why you shouldn't go after that thing that you love to do. So uh, appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome. Thanks for listening to the How Did You Get Into That podcast with Grant Baldwin. Don't forget to visit grantbaldwin.com for all the show notes and links discussed in today's episode. We'll see you next time.